Hi, this is Rachel Hyen and Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after our podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series lectures on hand fractures and dislocations. These are frequently tested and we look forward to giving you high yield facts from the last five to eight years of the in-service. Additionally, please visit www.theresidentreview.com, a recently launched website where you can follow along with our outlines used for these podcasts. Hannah, why don't you get us started? So in general, spiral fractures are a result of torsional forces. Axial loading compression causes oblique fractures and tension or three-point bending causes transverse fractures. So keep that in mind for all the different fractures that we'll talk about today. So first we'll discuss distal phalanx fractures. So remember that for open fractures of the distal phalanx, these do not require antibiotics. For a tuft fracture, you can splint the patient for 14 days. A shaft fracture is generally treated with a splint versus K-wire fixation. So a mallet finger is when there is avulsion of the terminal extensor tendon. The DIP typically remains concentrically reduced if less than 43% of the joint surface is involved. Surgical treatment is recommended if greater than a third of the articular surface is involved. So conservative treatment is with the DIP and extension and the PIP is free. So a Seymour fracture is a physial fracture of the distal phalanx with interposition of the proximal nail matrix. And this requires open reduction and nail removal. And then you'll remove the interposed germinal matrix. You'll finally splint the patient or fixate with K-wires. And by definition, this is an open fracture. Then a jersey finger, so picture a football player grabbing a jersey and they'll have avulsion of the FDP from the distal phalanx. This is most commonly of the ring finger. And in type one, you have retraction of the FDP to the palm. And so repair is needed within two weeks. In type two, there's retraction to the PIP to the A3 pulley and repair is required within three months. And type three, the tendon retracts to the A4 pulley and this can be repaired at any time, even after three months. And repair consists of an open reduct fixation with screws or wiring. So for middle phalanx fractures, we use the London classification, and this is for fractures extending into the DIP joint. Uh, Type 1 is a non-displaced unicondylar fracture, and this can be treated by orthosis for three weeks, followed by buddy taping for an additional two to three weeks. Type 2 will require K-wire screw fixation, and type 3 reconstruction is very difficult. For shaft fractures, Stable fractures after reduction may be treated closed, so with, again, three weeks of orthosis and then two to three weeks of buddy taping. And acceptable alignment includes no clinical malrotation and no angulation greater than 10 degrees. And the best evaluation of rotation is with the patient in full flexion. Oblique fractures will require K-wire screw fixation. Uh, Rachel, do you want to take us through PIP dislocations? All right. Thanks, Hannah. So there are several different types of PIP dislocations. There are isolated dislocations and fracture dislocations. So for dorsal dislocations of the PIP isolated, remember that the distal is dorsal. That's how it's defined. The entrapped structures can include the FDP and the volar plate can also block reduction. So if you can't obtain reduction, you have to go to the OR for an open reduction. You will frequently find the flexors or the volar plate. 
There's a dorsal fracture dislocation of the PIP, which we are commonly tested. Remember that the PIP anatomy is a hinge joint, which we've been tested on with 100 to 110 degrees of motion. Assessment is classified by fracture configuration and stability, so stable versus unstable. Dorsal fracture dislocation, so remember dorsal distal, they are more stable in flexion and unstable in extension. And our goal is concentric reduction of the joint. And if this can be achieved with 30 degrees of flexion or less, or if it has less than 20% of the articular surface involved, this is of the middle phalanx, this is considered stable. 30 to 50% of articular involvement requiring increased flexion greater than 30 degrees are described as tenuous or unstable. And those with greater than 50 degrees of articular involvement are unstable due to the collateral being avulsed off the middle phalanx. So unstable is anything greater than 50 or requiring more than 30 degrees of flexion at the middle phalanx to achieve stability or concentric reduction. And 30 to 50 can go either way, but typically they will be unstable. Radiographs or fluoroscopy are used to assess this injury. And typically we'll see a radiographic V sign on a lateral that results from dorsal subluxation of the middle phalanx. So extension block splinting and pinning. These are used for stable fractures in a PIP joint that is stable in less than 30 degrees of flexion. External fixation and dynamic traction is all the way on the other end of treatment. So this is for unstable or comminuted PIP dislocation fractures with loss of the dorsal cortex or comminuted middle phalanx fractures. So you will pick that answer choice. It has a greater than 50% of the cortex involved and it has no dorsal cortex or it has a comminuted portion that extends into the middle phalanx. You want to use external fixation or dynamic traction because remember all the fixation techniques I'm about to talk about require a dorsal cortex. The next option for surgical fixation is ORIF. Remember, you do need a dorsal cortex intact for this. And this is frequently used for large partial articular fractures with minimal or preferably no comminution. So a big old bone fragment. A volar plate arthroplasty is mainly of historic significance, but this is for fractures less than 50 to 60% of the articular base of the middle phalanx. A hemi-hamate arthroplasty, which we're commonly tested on, this aims to reconstruct the volar buttress of the middle phalanx with an autologous osteochondral graft from the dorsal distal hamate. This is good for greater than 50% of articular surface injuries in middle phalanx dorsal fracture dislocations. The most common complication is arthrosis. And remember, you do need that dorsal lip intact to achieve fixation when you transfer your hamate graft. Finally, volar dislocations are rare or very rare, but typically remember volar distal central slip injuries are very common with this and lack of recognition can lead to boutonniere deformity, which we'll talk about in our hand tendon lecture. This is usually a result of an axial load with palmarly directed force and includes a dorsal fracture at the base of the middle phalanx. So you need to remember an injury to the central slip or lateral bands, and this may require surgical fixation. If it's less than 25% of the articular surface, then you can splint. If it's greater than 25, then you need ORIF or pinning. And then to reduce these volar dislocations, which we have been tested on, remember with gentle traction, the MCP and PIP joints are held in flexion. So this allows for the relaxation of the volarly displaced lateral band, which can impede reduction, allowing it to be freed up from the lateral condyle. And then you can allow for successful reduction. All right, Hannah, why don't you take us through the rest of the proximal phalanx fractures? So the angulation from a proximal phalanx fracture, this is always volar because the proximal fragment is flexed by the interosseous attachments while the distal fragment is extended by the central slip resulting in PIP extension lag. And one millimeter of bone tendon discrepancy translates to 12 degrees of extension lag. 
So for a non-surgical treatment, these are for non-displaced closed fractures, it's appropriate to use buddy taping and early range of motion. Acceptable alignment includes at least 50% apposition, no malrotation, which again is based on the patient in full flexion, and less than 15 degrees of sagittal or frontal plane angulation. So a reduction maneuver, you put the digit in traction and then flex the MCP to 70-90 degrees. So in terms of operative treatment, this is for unstable or non-reducible fractures, such as oblique fractures or spiral comminuted fractures. And the treatment depends on the location of the fracture. So for base fractures, you'll use the Eaton-Belsky technique, which is flexion of the MCP and pinning through the MCP. Neck fractures are more common in children. And then finally, we have head fractures. If they're unicondylar and are usually unstable, displaced, you can again either use K-wires or an open reduction. A bicondylar fracture will require open reduction with fixation with plate or screws versus an oblique tension band. And complications of any of these fractures include loss of motion, malunion, or nonunion. I'll start us off with metacarpal fractures next. So the joint is a hinge joint for the thumb or a condyloid joint for the index and small fingers. So imaging for metacarpal fractures, you'll get a PA lateral and oblique, and then the Brewerton view is used for evaluating the metacarpal head. And then you'll get a 30 to 45 degree oblique view for the CMC and also a Roberts view of evaluating the thumb CNC. So for metacarpal head fractures, no degree of articular displacement is acceptable. If the fracture is severely comminuted, consider an X-fix or an MCP joint replacement. Arthrodesis and arthroplasty are last resort options. So for metacarpal neck fractures, these occur with axial loading applied to a clenched fist. And you'll most commonly see apex dorsal angulation because of the intrinsic muscles which lie volar. So acceptable dorsal angulation depends on which digit uh, you're referring to. So for the index finger and middle finger, 10 to 15 degrees is acceptable. Ring finger is 20 to 40 degrees and small finger is 20 to 60 degrees. And you'll see an obvious deformity from this fracture. You'll see a loss of appearance of the knuckle, a bump in the palm. So for treatment, you can just do cast immobilization with the MCPs at 70, 90 degrees. And you should cast for three to four weeks. And for reduction, you'll perform the Joss maneuver, which is where you have the MCPs flex 90 degrees. And you'll apply pressure dorsally through the proximal phalanx while stabilizing the metacarpal shaft. So operative treatment is indicated for any malrotation and unacceptable angulation, depending on which digit. So you'll perform closed reduction percutaneous pinning with the MCPs flex to prevent collateral contractures. So you can pin antegrade or retrograde through the collateral recess. Rachel, do you want to take us through metacarpal shaft fractures? For metacarpal shaft fractures, they're a little bit less forgiving. So just remember in all these talks that our most frequently tested point is that if there's any clinical malrotation, the fracture is operative. Acceptable angulation for metacarpal shaft fractures include less than 10 degrees of the index or middle finger. The ring can tolerate 20, the small 30. Remember again, no malrotation is acceptable. Treatment is casting or ORIF, and this can include plate, K-wires, nail. 
And remember, if you want to use a lag screw that you need a diameter of the fracture to be at least two times the diameter of the bone. Mini plate is great for transverse fractures and nailing can be used for either, but traditionally has been taught for transverse fractures. To reduce, you remember that the fracture is apex dorsal. So you need a little bit of volarly directed pressure with the proximal phalanx flexed and traction. For metacarpal base fractures, if they're extra articular, you can treat similar to the other metacarpal fractures we just talked about. K wires are typically placed into the carpus through the CMC, or you can use T plates. Intraarticular needs absolute anatomic reduction, so you want to consider CT scans with these. Additional X-ray views, which we were tested on last year, if it's a, the small finger CMC joint is involved at the metacarpal base, will be the AP view with the forearm pronated in 30 degrees, which can show the fifth CMC, or a lateral with 30 degrees, which again is for the fifth CMC. We're moving now to the thumb. So thumb extraarticular metacarpal base fractures at the metaphyseal diaphyseal junction. These can tolerate a great amount of angulation. So 20 to 30 degrees is acceptable. The reduction maneuver is tape. So longitudinal traction, abduction, pronation, and extension. And then you should ass assess your reduction with fluoroscopy. And then if you can't get good reduction, you can always do closed reduction with K wires through the CMC for four weeks. An MCP dorsal dislocation we are commonly tested on. And remember MCP dorsal dislocation is the phalanx will be dorsal. The metacarpal will be volar. The index finger is the most commonly involved. The small is also common. The mechanism is usually forced hyperextension. The patients will present with MCP ex extension and flexion of the PIP and DIP with puckering of the skin. If the complex cannot be reduced, then you'll want to take it to the operating room for an open reduction. And remember that we're frequently tested on this. Studies reveal that the flexors go ulnar to metacarpal head in every case, and the radial digital nerve is superficial. So that's a risk with a volar approach. In MCP dorsal dislocations for the small finger, the flexor tendons and lumbricals are on the radial side, and the ADM and FDM are on the ulnar side. For the index finger, the lumbricals on the radial side and the flexors on the ulnar side, which we have been tested on. The division of the volar plate is typically needed for all reductions that are required open. And the method of closed reduction is attempted with wrist flexion. So you relax the flexors, a gentle extension, and then you'll push down on the dorsal proximal phalanx. You want to avoid longitudinal traction as this can create a complex dislocation by allowing the volar plate to interpose between the heads. The lumbrical or flexor tendon can also create a noose if longitudinal traction is applied. Remember, those are the things that can get interposed. And for an open erection, this can be approached either dorsally or volarly. MCP dorsal dislocation of the thumb is a little bit different. This can typically be treated with a closed reduction with the same maneuvers that we talked about for the previous one. So a little bit of wrist flexion, you can do gentle hyperextension of the MCP with pressure on the dorsal base of the proximal phalanx. And for this, the FPL and thenar musculature can trap the metacarpal head like a noose. To get around this, you can always try a digital block and provide wrist flexion. And we were tested on that. MCP volar dislocations are rare and there's no consensus of treatment. There's usually no interposed structures and closed reduction is successful. Next, we'll talk a little bit about the CMC joint. The anatomy is a horse saddle, which we've been tested on. There are 16 ligaments supporting the joint. And the most important ones that we need to know are the anterior oblique and dorsal radial. For a thumb CMC fracture dislocation, which is the Bennett's fracture, there are two components, a volar fragment, which is small and attached to the anterior oblique ligament and trapezium. And then the second fragment, which is the metacarpal shaft. And this migrates proximally, dorsally, and radially, which we've been tested on. And that's via pole of the APL, adductor pollicis, EPL, EPB. So you'll have apex dorsal angulation. Yes, we've been tested on this. Can you believe it? That's quite detailed. <laughs> a reverse Bennett is a fifth metacarpal base with dorsal subluxation. 
And the deforming forces can include the FCU or the ECU, the ADM. Treatment of this is either closed reduction percutaneous pinning or ORIF. And remember, we have been tested. How do you reduce a Bennett fracture? It is dapper, distract, and then you'll do abduction of the shaft or radial pressure at the base. So dap, pronation, and perfect reduction. That is, that's Dr. Lalonde. You can complain to him about that. But basically you want distraction, abduction, and pronation. Distraction, abduction, and pronation. A Rolando fracture is a comminuted intraarticular fracture of the thumb base, metacarpal base, and this can be a T or Y type, and you want to use ORIF for this. All right, Hannah, let's talk about the thumb MCP joint. Okay. The anatomy of this joint, the ulnar collateral ligament consists of the proper and accessory collateral ligaments. It originates from the dorsal ulnar aspect of the MP head and the proximal volar part of the proximal phalanx. The radial collateral ligament consists of proper and accessory collateral ligaments. It originates uh, dorsal radially and attaches on the lateral tubercle of the proximal phalanx. Acute abduction injuries tear the ulnar collateral ligament and are referred to as skier's thumb, which is acute, or a gamekeeper's thumb, which is chronic. Adduction injuries injure the radial collateral ligament. So for exam, the metacarpal head is stabilized and radially directed force is applied to the proximal phalanx. Remember, this is performed in extension and 30 degrees of flexion. Uh, for radiographic exam, two millimeters of radial translation of the proximal phalanx on the metacarpal head is consistent with complete disruption of both the accessory and proper ulnar collateral ligaments. And then ultrasound can be used to diagnose ulnar collateral ligament injuries, but MRI is more sensitive and specific. If there's a concern for a partial tear in the RCL, then most advocate for RCL repair. For grade three, this requires surgical repair or reconstruction depending on chronicity. UCL is typically avulsed off of the proximal phalanx and the RCL is equal avulsion from the metacarpal and proximal phalanx. A stenter lesion, the UCL is avulsed and retracts proximally. Interposed adductor aponeurosis can preclude primary healing. So the UCL will not heal properly without contact at the avulsion site. Repair is typically done via suture anchors, transosseous wiring versus an internal brace. Reconstruction of the UCL is usually done at three to six weeks due to the poor outcomes of repair the next we'll talk about thumb MCP dislocations. The majority of these are dorsal and caused by hyperextension. Uh, closed reduction is usually possible. If not, interposed tissues include the volar plate, FPL, sesamoids. There are four main ligaments, the anterior or volar oblique, the dorsoradial, intermetacarpal, and posterior oblique. And remember in total, 16 total ligaments. The anterior oblique ligament is the primary stabilizer and attenuation or disruption is important in subluxation. The dorsal ligament is the primary ligament and is the strongest ligament of the thumb. This needs to be torn for dorsal subluxation of the thumb and may be most important for thumb stability. Which I think we were tested on last year. So if you, so I think the anterior oblique ligament is more important when you're talking about attenuation for CMC arthritis, but the dorsal radial ligament is what's going to be torn in a dislocation. So they asked which ligament and it's dorsoradial. Do you want to take us through some of the radiographic exam? 
So the first thing you can do is a dynamic stress view where you exert pressure simultaneously on both thumbs um, by pressing the thumbs against each other. The Roberts view is a true view of the CMC. It's a true lateral. And advanced imaging like ultrasound can be used to identify ligament tears. We're a couple miscellaneous, so we're frequently tested on Salter Harris. So remember, there's a great picture, which we don't have pictures on our podcast, but the Salter. So S is type one, it stands for straight across. A is type two, so the fracture will go across and then above into the metaphysis. L is lower or below, so through the physis and then down into the joint. T is two or through, so it's both above and below. And ER is erasure of the growth plate or crush injury. Remember, we were tested on the position of PIP or MCP arthrodesis. So for the PIP joints, the index finger is 40, the long finger is 45, the ring finger is 50, and the small finger is 55. For the MP joints, the thumb MP is 15, index finger 25, long finger 30, 35, and then 40 for the small finger. So the way I remember it is you start at the thumb MP at 15. So 15, 25, 30, 35, 40, and then you move up to the PIP of the index finger and you start at 40, and then you go 45, 50, 55. Supercondylar, supercondylar fractures, which we are tested on for some reason. These occur mostly in patients ages five to seven years of age. It's a fall in an outstretched hand, and it does have a risk of ischemia via brachial artery occlusion. You want to perform an immediate closed reduction. So gentle traction and elbow flexion followed by an operative closed reduction. If that's unsuccessful, or if the ischemia persists after closed reduction, if the hand is perfused, despite pulselessness, you want to observe. And then finally, we're tested on types of bone grafting very frequently. So osteoconduction, this refers to replacement of graft material through the process of creeping substitution. So this is cortical grafts or calcium hydroxyapatite. Osteoinduction is the stimulation of bone forming cells from the surrounding host tissues. So cancellous grafts, demineralized bone matrix and cortical bone. And then osteogenesis is the actual osteogenesis from osteoblasts. And that can occur via cancellous bone or, or vascularized bone grafts. Non-critical bone defects are less than six centimeters, and this can undergo autologous bone grafting like corticocancellus from the iliac crest. If it's greater than six centimeters and you want to start talking about a vascularized transfer like a free fibula. And finally, the most common fractures, which I'm sure we'll go again in our wrist feature of the wrist is first distal radius, then scaphoid, then triquetrum, and then lunate. All right. Well, that concludes our podcast today. Thanks for joining us. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.